Good morning, Church at Essex. Good morning, Church at North Avenue. Uh, good morning, Online Church. Uh, glad you've chosen to be a part of our day, regardless of that's in person or in their living room or North Avenue. Thanks for being a part of our day. A couple of things for you very quickly. Uh, one, the couple you saw on the screen, Noe and Kyla, uh, missionaries from Paraguay. They're part of our denomination. Paraguay, just to remind you, is the country that we've adopted in the field that we've adopted to partner with. Now, we'd be further along if it weren't for COVID, but COVID, of course, has taken care of all sorts of travel and those kind of things. Our hope had been that by now, we would have sent our first team or two down to Paraguay to be a, to partner with them. So, that, of course, we can't do that because of travel. So, we've asked them to begin sending some videos that would introduce them to us and get to know them. Uh, and just so you know, that's what's in the future. Not for, a, not for the next year, but for years, we want to partner with the field in Paraguay, um, a partner church where we're not only raising some funds for them, but projects for them and working together uh, to do ministry there. Now, some folks have said, why did you choose Paraguay? Well, one of the key reasons why we chose Paraguay is because of the, the mission field of Paraguay, where our team is at, where that couple is serving at, that's one of the countries which has been the least populated as far as Christian churches, our churches wanting to go partner with them. Meaning, we looked. We didn't. We didn't want to go someplace where all sorts of churches were lined up to help. We wanted to go someplace where somebody wasn't lined up to help. Uh, I'll give you an example. Cuba opened up. So Cuba had been closed for years. Cuba opened up uh, for ministry in Cuba and for churches to support the missions work in Cuba. Well, there's a line of churches that want to help and be a part of the Cuban ministry. Well, nothing wrong with that. But we looked at Paraguay, and Paraguay was a place where people weren't lining up. There weren't churches lined up. So we talked with them and said, we want to be someplace where we can make a difference. We want to be a place where no one else is lined up to help them. So that's why we chose Paraguay. We're not looking for a short term. We're looking for a long-term commitment. Our hope would be in the uh, years to come that uh, every January or so, you, or maybe the fall, you get a booklet that says ministry opportunities this year for Essex Alliance Church. And you can look at the places where you can go, travel, things you can be a part of as far as our missions outreach. We've asked that couple right now, we've asked them to not only begin connecting with us. We've also asked them to identify a project that they would like us to be partners with them in, something we can raise funds towards and be moving towards seeing something happen. So that's the background there. The other item was just this, uh, of course, Night to Shine, you know, we're talking just uh, weeks away now um, and still needs your help to participate in that. Uh, it's out, it's, you know, it's outdoors, it's a drive-through event, and admittedly, if you think, put it this way, for most of us that we think drive-through, we can't even imagine what that might look like other than, you know, a car driving through. I was in the office the other day making a copy, and sitting on the copier was a, a um, I'll say a floor plan, but a, a, a property plan of how the event will go, where the cars come in, where they travel, the stations along the way that they're going to go through, the red carpet area. And I got to tell you, it was, it was so impressive that when people pull in, they're going to be on property for some time because there's the stations all along the way where they get pictures taken and all the things that normally we would do in person, we're going to do, but we're going to do it from a car. We're going to do it with their windows open, people cheering. Uh, uh, Kim and Doug Underhill have been our, our team leaders. Uh, there's been a, a big team of people put it, putting this together. Underhills have been leading the charge. And I just want to say, be a part of that diet. It's just, they're doing such an incredible job. Uh, and anyone who's ever participated, you know that if you've ever done it, you've done it to think, well, I should go serve. And you walk away feeling as if you have been served. Feeling as if, as if you have given far more. I mean, you have, been, you have been given far more than you ever put out. 
So if you can participate in that, by all means, uh, join in. Go take a look online and see how you can, how you can help out. We're going to continue our series this morning, A Great New Year. Now, we're still in January, which is the month of resolutions. January is that month of that time where around the world, everyone has said, this is the beginning of change. And that's how we kind of work. You know, we're all kind of like that, right? <clears throat> we know we should change. So we always pick a starting date. Few of us wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm going to change my whole life starting today. Doesn't usually go that way. We like to plan it ahead, especially when it comes to New Year's. It's the perfect time. Kind of goes like this. So in November, October, I can look at myself and say, you know, I really should start eating better, but not today. Um, I need a good start time. I need a good start. You know, January 1st is the perfect time. So in November, I go, you know what? I'm in a whole new me starting January 1st. Now, not only does that help, but it really helps you get through Christmas. Um, I mean, I can cruise through Christmas because I know that I don't have to worry about it until January. But that's the other problem, that when it comes to making decisions like resolutions, what happens in our lives is that because I intend to do it, it's just as if I have done it, Right? Because I intend to, then that makes a difference. So I can live any way I want because, you know, I'm going to make a change later. That's how we do it with our, with our decisions. Oftentimes in our life, because I intend for it to happen, I feel like it has happened. And so January can come and I can say, oh, I'm going to wait till February, but it's still okay because I intend to do it in February. I can say, you know, I'm going to wait till July. It's okay because I intend. It's the game we play. We do that. This is the time where the whole world says, what the perfect, it's a perfect time to restart and to make a new and better me. Now, I was doing some research. I found out this. I was curious as to how long the uh, resolution typically lasts for Americans. So uh, they, they actually calculate it. So for the typical American that makes a New Year's resolution, that resolution lasts for 36 days or less. 36 days or less, which means what? Which means if you're going to make a resolution to make you a better you, get at it quick because you only have 36 days to change yourself for less before you have abandoned it. That's just the statistic that's out there. Now, we've talked about this. We've said that for most of us, it's a time of year where we ask the question, how do I make a better me? And we said there might be a better question to be asking yourself. That's what we talked about last week. We said a better, a better question than asking what can I do to make my life better might be what can I do to make someone else's life better. That would be a far better question. That would be a far better resolution to pick up for yourself as to how to make someone else's life better. And we looked at Nehemiah last week and we talked about, we told the story how Nehemiah got news about Jerusalem being a mess and how it broke his heart, which means it wasn't just news to him, but he actually allowed it to affect his heart to that place where it was moving him to action. So we asked ourselves the question, so what is it in your life that breaks your heart? What is it that would move you to the place of action? Because we, we know, quite honestly, when we use the idea of breaking your heart, we're not just talking about a, a, a mere emotion. We're talking about how do we get to a place where we see something, where we allow God to move us in such a place that it breaks our heart, because what that typically means is action. You know, none of us just decides to go do something without there being some attachment to it. So in most of our lives, something has to happen, the broken heart moment, which says, you know what, that bothers me enough. I'm going to allow it to bother me enough that I'm actually going to go and act on it. That's what we've been talking about. And I will remind you of this. If you love your church, if you love your church, whether it be Essex Lions Church or be North Avenue Lions Church, but if you love your church, you know that every one of us are benefiting in the church today because someone before us asked the question, how do I make someone else's life better than mine? I mean, you're here 
You're enjoying this place. You enjoy North Avenue, wherever it might be you call home. You're enjoying that church because someone before you said, I'm going to live beyond myself. I'm going to give beyond myself. How do I make someone else's life better? Now, every one of us have benefited from the fact that someone in our lives have asked that question and actually went and acted on it. Every single one of us. Now, listen carefully. We need people today more than ever. People who will look around themselves, will look at their neighborhood, will look at their school, will look at their town, will look at their workplace, will look at their neighbors, will look around the world, wherever it might be, and ask the question, what breaks my heart to the place where I actually do something about it? Where can I help? What can I do? Where can I make my contribution? How can I make a difference in what I see? Now, maybe we talked about this. Maybe you won't change the world. Truth of it is, few of us are going to change the world. But every one of us can change the life of someone else. Maybe not the world, but a slice of the world. Now, we said this. Real action always starts with a broken heart. You see, a heart that's allowed to be stirred and broken by God by some need. Now, today I need to go a little step further. So I got to kind of finish off last week's sermon. Some of you are thinking, you preach for a whole hour, you can't finish it in one time. Well, no, so just stick with me. I'll get it done today, though, I promise. I'll finish up that last week's sermon, I'll finish that up today. But I want to go a step further because it's one thing to say, well, let your heart be broken. But you have to understand what that's going to mean. Because if you don't get that, if you don't understand what it means, then you're really going to be stuck in one place. So I want to talk more about now some next steps. Now, practically speaking, maybe as practical as I can be, whenever you begin to think about where can I change, make a change, where can I affect someone's life, where can I make someone's life better, don't get locked up on this thing. I mean, don't make this harder than it is, which means this. There are so many needs around us, a lot of us will get locked up because there are so many things. Where do I begin? Everywhere you look, there's something, you know. And it's one of those things where it's so, it, it, there's needs everywhere, which you can very quickly begin to get to a place that says, ah, I don't even know where to start, so I won't start. But, you know, again, don't look at the world. Don't look at the world. Look at your town. Look at your church. Look at your neighborhood. Look at your street. In fact, let me give you a a passion-provoking question that will help you begin to think what it might mean to have your heart broken into action. Ask yourself this question. At the end of my life, what would I like to think that people might line up to thank me for? At the end of my life, I would like people to line up to thank me for what? Now, I get the fact that what we do, we do quietly. We don't do it for people to, to, you know, give us accolades, but it really does help if you'll answer the question. At the end of my life, I'd like to think that people would want to line up to thank me for what? Now, first of all, don't spiritualize how you answer that. I, I need you to answer it in your head, but don't spiritualize it because you're in church. Uh, I like that people like to thank me for leading them to Jesus. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, who would want that, right? But they don't spiritualize it. And don't, don't take the surface approach that goes, I like to think my grandkids will thank me for being the greatest grandpa either. Well, first of all, I can only be one of those, and so you can't have that title. So you're going to be very, very disappointed if you're a grandpa, because I got it. But don't do that either. So I'm asking you this, but think about this for a moment. We know that you're going to take care of your kids, your, spot, your wife, your husband. We know that you want your grandkids to grow up someday and think you're the best grandpa ever. I got it. I got it. But outside of the realm of your family, 
outside of the realm of making a living, outside of eating and paying the bills and doing all the things that you have to do anyway, outside of all of the obvious, is there something in your life where your heart would be broken to action, where it might make such a difference that people at the end of their lives or your life might, might want to get in line to say, I just want to thank you for what? What might that be? Now, the problem in answering that question is that for there to be an answer, it means you're going to have to give something up. That's the problem. It's going to require something of you. Yes, it's going to cost you something. For someone to say thank you for giving of yourself in whatever way, that means you actually have to give of yourself, which is why a lot of times we shrink back. Why a lot of us will end up in a position that says, well, you know, truth be told, I really don't think I can meet that need. I just don't have the time. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the energy I used to. I don't have the availability. I don't have the money. I don't have the whatever. And the truth is, if you're going to make even the smallest movement in the direction of something that stirs your heart, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you some time. It's going to cost you some family time. It's going to cost you some personal time. It's going to cost you some hobby time. It's going to cost you some money. It's going to cost you some energy. It's going to cost you some part of your life. But the real issue that we really bang our heads against is this. I'll use a prop. The real problem we have is that when we talk about getting involved in someone else's life, this is the issue. The issue is at the core of every single one of us, we are life preservers. We're not life givers awayers. We're life preservers. I walked in with this this morning and somebody saw and said, hey, what are you going to do with that? So it's a prop. You're going to put it on? No. <laughs> I'm not. But my hope is that after this sermon, this summer, when somewhere along the way you see something that even looks like this, you're going to remember something that we talked about today. But quite honestly, this thing here, a life preserver, embodies who we are as people. Because the truth of it is, that's exactly what we do with our lives. We spend our lives trying to preserve life. We spend our time and our energy trying to preserve my time, trying to preserve my family life, trying to preserve my energy, trying to preserve my, my space, my spouse, whatever it might be. It's my nature, and it's your nature. I mean, that's our nature. So there's no judgment there. That's literally, quite honestly, who we are. Because the truth of it is, if we're not watching out for our time and our energy, who else is? So there's no judgment there, but that's who we are. Life is about me. Life, your life, is about you. Now, the problem with it breaks your heart is to do something about that which breaks your heart. At some point, you have to begin to give some of the things we work hard to preserve, you actually have to let go of them. That's the problem. And then what happens, it feels like this. When you actually begin to let your heart be broken, where it actually pushes you into action, then you begin to feel like, well, I feel like I'm losing something here. I feel like I'm losing control of my life. I feel like I'm losing control of my money. I feel like I'm losing control of my, of my time or my energy or my opportunities. The truth of it is, when you give yourself to something here and something else comes along, you can't do that because you're already doing this. Happened with our kids when they were young all the time. They'd want to do something and say, well, if you do that, you've got to be committed to it. And so they'd be committed to it, but then something better comes along. Oh, I want to do that. Sorry, you can't do that because you're committed to this. See, that's the problem that we have. That's in our lives what makes us tension, right? 
That's the tension. I want to do something, but to do it, I feel like I got to give myself away. I'm losing some of my life, and there the tension exists. I wouldn't mind my heart. I'll just be real honest with you. I wouldn't mind God breaking my heart over things if it didn't cost me something. I wouldn't mind my heart breaking over something if it didn't cost me something. I mean, who wouldn't like to say, oh, I care about all sorts of things, and they don't cost me anything? See, there's the real tension. I want to preserve my life. I want to preserve what I've got. I want to keep this life. I don't really want to lose what I have in this life. Let me be as transparent as I can be. If you decide, listen carefully, if you decide to make this world a better place, if you decide to make someone's life better this coming year, you're actually going to go do something about it. If you decide, I'm going to start leaning in And I'm going to say, what is that thing? What is that cause? What is that person? What is that place that I actually will allow it to break my heart to the place where I do something about it? If you are willing to do that, what's that family in your area? Who's that child that you know? Who's that person living in poverty? What's that ministry in the church? If you actually will allow God to nudge your heart into doing something, there will be a tension. Please know that. The tension is real and it's okay. In fact, here's the next statement. Every single person who claims to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ should be living with that tension all the time. Now, that's going to work against most of us because most of us want lives that are tension-free. But if you're a follower of Christ, you're supposed to be living with that tension Now, honestly, some of us are more geared for those heartbroken moments than others. Some of us are just geared for our heartbreaks all the time. I mean, it's like, oh, look at that, oh, look at that, look at that. Others of us don't see a thing. But that's not an excuse for inaction. When you think about that key action, it's going to feel like you're giving up something or you're giving it away. You're giving up part of your life. So some of you will put that tension aside And you will, in fact, give yourself up for something else. That tension will be there, but you're going to say, I'm just going to deal with that tension, and I'm going to have to, I'm just going to, I'm going to go do this thing. God's called me to do it, I'm going to do it. Others of you, you'll just ignore the tension and not act at all. And it's about this time that we're going to look at a passage that Jesus has something to say. Because Jesus understood the tension that we would face. Jesus comes along and he says this to us. Now listen, whoever devotes themselves to themselves, which is what we all are, which is what we all do, it's what we're all inclined to do. In the end, he says, anyone who's going to devote themselves to themselves, when it's all said and done, all you're going to have to to show for is yourself and you lose. He says, if you're going to go through this life trying to preserve your life, if you're going to have that life preserver mentality, then the end is, You'll have nothing to show for it. Now, let me give you the background of the text we're going to look at so you understand the background and get some perspective for it. So Jesus was out and about. He was preaching, teaching. He was healing people. Um, and uh, he's, wherever the people were, were, I mean, every day he got up and he began to preach and teach. That's what he did. Wherever he went, people were around him. People could not get enough of him. And, and what he had to say and what he had to do. And that makes sense, right? I mean, the crowds were always there. I mean, you'd be there too. I mean, he was the best show in town. Let's just be honest. I mean, when's the last time you saw somebody get healed who was blind? 
When's the last time you saw someone who had a shriveled up hand and Jesus said, hey, put your hand out and watch his hand be restored? When's the last time you saw someone who's lay, who, was, who was paralyzed on their back, couldn't move, and Jesus says, hey, stand up, pick up your mat and walk, and, they, and he did it. When's the last time you saw somebody dead going by in a funeral possession and Jesus said, hey, come out of the coffin? So let's be honest, he's the best show going. And you would have been there and so would have I. I mean, we would have not wanted to miss a thing. And that's exactly what we find that happened. The Bible tells us that wherever Jesus went, the crowds showed up. He was constantly surrounded with people. And be sure to see this and get this. Wherever Jesus was, not necessarily he went. What it means by that is this. It wasn't like Jesus got up in the morning, saw a crowd and said, oh, I want to go there because there's a crowd of people. All Jesus had to do was get up in the morning and somehow, somewhere, somebody said, I know where he's at. And the crowd showed up all around him. And they wouldn't just be close enough to hear him. They wanted to be close enough to touch him. That was the nature of the crowd. They wanted to be close enough either to touch him or maybe for some of them, he would actually touch them. But you can't get away from them. Everywhere he went, surrounded by people. I've only had a couple of times in my life when I have been in crowds of people to the place where, I mean, you just couldn't get away. I mean, for the most part, I'll walk into Costco on certain days and I just walk out. It's like, duh, I can't do this. There's just too many people. Uh, you've been in the grocery store sometimes, like the day before Thanksgiving, and it's kind of like, I just go with that. We're not, I'll just, no cranberry sauce for me. Um, I just, it's like every aisle, it's like, I, I got to get out of here. But that's not the case. I've been in a couple of times. One time, we took our kids to New York, uh, New York City for a, a, a weekend a Christmas spectacular and to see the Christmas show, and the, they wanted to see the Rockefeller tree. I said, come on, let's do it. So, of course, we made our way, and all of a sudden, we found ourselves absolutely packed with people, packed to the place where we could move. Now, I've got my grown kids and some grandchildren with us, and I'm, we're wall-to-wall people. And this is not a case where you have to figure out how to navigate. This is a case where you just navigate if they allow you. And so the movement was towards the tree, and so you move towards the tree. But I began to get panicked. I mean, it's just one of those, I, I didn't know I could even feel this way, because that's not my, my nature. But as I, I'm looking around, I can't go anywhere. I can't say, let's just, just, just forget this. I can't. And everyone's just jammed together, and you're touching your shoulder to shoulder. I mean, there's no space, and there's nowhere to go. I mean, that panicked feeling. This is Jesus' experience every day. Every single day he gets up, he begins, the swarms come around him. Why? Because they want to be close enough to him in case something happens. And on top of that, though, I mean, they want to be touched by him because many of them are sick. So a lot of these people are diseased, open sores, you know, they got sickness, that kind of deal. On top of that, they all smell. Now, not just the sick people, everybody smells. We all smell. Now, sometimes it's a good smell, sometimes it's a bad smell, but we all smell back then, smells worse. But put yourself in that crowd, and not only, and not only do we smell, but you know, sometimes we think, well, it's a good smell. I mean, sometimes we smell like Febreze, the fabric cleaner. Sometimes we smell like a breeze. Sometimes we would give anything if we had a breeze. I mean, so, you know, that's the truth of how we operate. And not only, not good smells aren't necessarily always good. So I go to trips in Israel. I have my rules. I go through the group. So I have 30 to 50 people. I go through rules. One of the rules is no old woman perfume or old man aftershave on the bus. And they look at you like, but I brought all my perfume. Throw it out. You're not wearing it on the bus. Nobody wants that smell on the bus. And I actually tell them why. I said, so here's the deal. 
Old women perfume, old men perfume. They wear perfumes and they wear aftershave for two reasons. First, to attract the other sex. Women wear the perfume to attract the men or vice versa. And I tell them, this is not the love boat. This is, the, this is not the love bus tour. This is, the, this is the Holy Land tour. So we're not attracting anybody. So don't put that. The second reason we dump the stuff on is to hide some other smell. And I say, take care of that smell before you get out. And then you have this thing. You ever have somebody who's coated with something and then they hug you? And you know, they hug you. And then later in the day, you're going, they're still with me. So even the good smells that we think are really, really good, not so good. Especially if you put this in a Middle Eastern context, hot, hot temperatures, uh, manual laborers, many fishermen. I mean, it's a bad scene. And they're all around Jesus all the time, hoping that something would happen every single day. And there's no car that he can jump into and whisk him away. Here's the text, Luke chapter 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And that happened every day. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, now there's a great new resolution for you. My hate your family. Some of us would excel at that, I'm sure. But there's a first resolution. Here's what you got to do. You got to hate everybody. Nope. I've had people through the years of ministry look at me, talk to me, say that how could Jesus actually promote such a thing? I've had one person say, I would not be a, fo- I would not be a Christian because of the kind of stuff Jesus taught like that. Any person that would read that verse with even the slightest hint of knowing anything about the gospel, the church, God, whatever, would look at that and say, there's got to be more to it, right? I grew, up in, I grew up in church. I grew up in Sunday school as a little kid. And I, every time we would read this passage, I have it read, I would sit there and go, that can't be right. Because we know that Jesus would not teach hate. Well, he's not. He's not. He is not teaching us to have this emotion of hating people. What Jesus is using here is something that we call hyperbole. Hyperbole is when you speak in such a way, you use words and terms in such a way as to be like a shock value to get people's attention. I guarantee that all these people in that family-oriented culture would have stopped everything to listen when he says, hey, you want to follow me? Hate your brother, hate your sister, hate your mother. It's like, what? Hyperbole. He's not talking about the emotion of hate. In fact, what he's pressing the people is this. He's not pressing them to hate their families. He's not asking them to leave their families. What he's pressing them is to answer the question, who am I going to follow? He's pressing them to ask the question, who are the people in my life that will control my life? Who are the ones? Who is the one? He's pressing the people to ask the question, who's going to be the authority and who's going to be in control? Interesting. Every one of the people that Jesus listed in that are all people who have a history of controlling our lives. Our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers, I mean, they all have a history of controlling our lives, whether they're deliberately trying to control it or some other issue going on, right? These are the people, these are the relationships that tend to control us. They control how we see ourselves. They control whether we feel loved or not or appreciated or not. They, they control whether we have self-esteem or not. These are the people in our lives that typically exercise control over us. And Jesus is pressing the question that says, you've got to answer the question, who's going to be in control of your life? That's the issue. 
A person who does not decide once and for all who's going to be in charge of their life, they cannot be my disciple. That's what he's saying. This was Jesus' bold way of saying, look, every day you follow me. Every day you walk with me. Every day you surround me. You go wherever I go. Let's be honest, people. You love the show. But you are not my followers. You can't be one of my disciples until you decide who is going to be Lord of your life. You can like the show. I don't fault you for that. But you're not a true follower until you make a decision. And listen, he even actually says, he lists all the other people, but he adds that, even hate your own life. So even for the person that would be confused by it, that would actually bring him back for a second because he goes, wait a minute, hate my own life? And he says, listen, even hate, you have to hate your own life. Go, what does that mean? It makes this, it means this. He is not asking people to have a horrible life. To hate your own life does not mean to feel bad about yourself. It is to decide who you're going to submit your life to. Is it all going to be about you? Or is it going to be about God? Let me give you a theological statement that some of you can wrestle with, but all of us need to think through, and that is this. The essence of a life of following Jesus is the essence of self-denial, not self-improvement. Make sure you get that. The essence of a walk with God is a life marked by self-denial, not by self-improvement. For most of us, it's all about self-improvement. Better me, better life for me, at least this time of year specifically. But the life of following Jesus is not the life of self-improvement. It is the life of self-denial. That's hard for me, and that's hard for you. If Jesus were here in the flesh preaching this morning, I think he would say something like this. I'm all for your improvement. Go do it. Go get it done. But follow me, and you will discover something that you never imagined. You will experience power, blessing, and fulfillment that comes through self-denial, which goes exactly against all of our our intuitive senses. Because we think the power comes by grabbing, not by letting go. He says, go do, go make yourself better. No issue with that. But you give it all over to me and you'll discover something you can't possibly imagine. And then he adds a statement that really would have thinned the crowd out. Verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, at this point, he's got their attention. Hate your mother, hate your father. Oh, wait a minute, what are you talking about? So now he's got their attention. Then he adds, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You can't be my follower unless you are willing to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, friends, let me expand this for just a moment. Please know this is before the cross. This is before Jesus dies on the cross. And yet, everyone understood the cross. Why? Because they knew the Romans. The Romans came, and the Romans are the ones that were experts on how to kill people. And the Romans had already introduced the idea of execution by cross. And everyone knew that someone who was going to die by execution on a cross, they were beaten first, typically. And then, they carried their own cross. They carried their own execution, executioner, if you will, to the place of death. They all knew that. So anyone carrying a cross, they knew, was on the road to death. That was the end. The end of the line is death. They got it. 
I've shared this with you before. It's always just irritated me a little. Not enough for me to say anything or correct anyone, but always irritates me a little bit when there are people in life that will say, you know, something's going on in your life. They go, well, we all have our cross to bear. You know, we all have our little thing we have to carry. That was not what that meant. When Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, you got your own cross to bear. He's talking about self-denial to the place of death. That's what he's talking about. And they all got it. This was the moment when all of a sudden the crowds would have thinned out. Jesus says, you can follow me. You can like the show. You can actually eat the free fish and breadsticks that we provide on key lunch moments when you run out of food. You can, you can enjoy all that. But don't kid yourself. You're not one of my followers. And about that time, all of the people are the, who were there for the what's in it for me, they've all gone back and joined the gym. They're going to work on a different resolution, and the resolution is to get fit again for the, for the year ahead. They would have bailed at that point. Now, I don't want to lose you here, but it is what it is. Following Jesus is a life of self-denial. It is what it is. Now, expect at this point, the crowds would have begun to, would have begun to thin out. I expect at this point they would have lost a little bit of their enthusiasm, start drifting away because thinking, man, it's not worth it. If he actually expects that if we're going to follow him, we're going to die and give our lives over to that surrender, not worth it. But for all those people that would have left at that point, they would have missed the fact that Jesus was on the verge of something else. Listen carefully. Jesus Christ will never remove something good from your life unless he has something better for your life. When Jesus was telling them, you're going to have to dump all of this stuff that you now think is the greatest, they're ready to bail out because they can't imagine that kind of life. But what they really can't imagine is Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you a better offer. Jesus will always give you a better offer, but you cannot say yes to him unless you say no to you. That's the principle. Look at this passage from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now note a couple of things. First of all, in this case, he calls the crowd to him. So somehow, some way, he's in a place where there is no crowd, so he calls them all to him and gathers them up close. And then what does he say? He says, what? He says, well, if he wants to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. There it is again. And then he adds to that, it's not self-improvement, it's self-denial. And then he says, take up your cross. There it is again. Take up your cross and follow me. But now in this text, in this passage, he actually goes a little bit further, and he actually gets at the real heart of the issue, because look at what it says next in verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose their life for me and the gospel will save it. Whoever wants to save their life, you know who that is, right? That's us. Who doesn't want to save their life? I mean, so when he says, who wants to save life, everybody there would be, that's me. I mean, he's talking to us. Who doesn't want to save their life? Who doesn't want to preserve their time, their energy, their money, their resources? I mean, we all want that. So he's talking to us. Whoever wants to save it, which would be all of us, of course we do. We're life preservers. I mean, I spend all sorts of kind of money and energy trying to preserve my life, trying to preserve a better life, trying to make my life better, to preserve my family's life. I mean, whatever it might be, fuller, richer. Whoever wants to save their life 
And what he means by that is not just, well, if you just care about, you know, things. He's going beyond that. He says this, whoever the person is who wakes up every day and has as their ultimate goal the priority of making their life a better life, whoever it might be who every day picks, wakes up and inside says, it's really all about me. Now, no one says that out loud. Well, yeah, I met a couple people who said that out loud, but for most of us, we don't say it out loud. It's all about me. We just actually keep it internal, but still live that way. And some people will say, well, no, I don't live that way because my, my, my family is very important to me. Yeah, but see, here's the thing you got to remember. See, I can make my family the most important thing in my life, but in the end, it's still about me. Because you see, what happens is my family can be a means to an end. So I can build my family, but the means to that end, the end is still what? Me. My spouse can be a means to an end, and the end being me. My kids, my boss, my job, all those things I can put in the wrong context, which it looks like I'm really committed to them, but at the end, it's still all about me. They can be the means to my end, and my end is about me. It's very possible. It happens all the time. If that's your approach to life, if you want to save your life, then you know, need to know if that's how you live, you're ultimately going to lose it. In the end... What you will have is you, and you are not enough. The very thing you've spent your whole life trying to preserve, you will ultimately lose. But friends, don't miss this. Jesus is actually giving an invitation to all of us life preservers. An invitation. He says, anyone that would like to preserve their life, and we all go, yeah, that's us. I'm going to tell you how to do that. He says, an invitation, but whoever loses their life for me, you get it all back. This was not a call for his followers to throw away their lives. This was not a call by Jesus for his followers to go pick up martyrdom. This is about a decision that every one of us has to make. A decision to say, Jesus, I am willing to have you lead me outside of me for something bigger than me. It's a decision that every follower has to make where they say, I'm willing to get outside of me. You see, as long as I am about me, I can't really do anything else, right? If it's about you, you really can't do much else. And even then, it's still going to be about you in the end. So here's the point. If you decide that you are willing to wrestle with the question, what breaks your heart? You need to know ultimately that wrestling will always take you outside of you. That wrestling will always take you beyond who you are and what you have. If you were to find a, a thing in your life where you can say, I hope that someday people would want to line up to thank me for whatever that might be, for that whatever that might be to be in that sentence, you're going to have to lose some of you. That's the way it goes. Now, if you don't want to do that, if you want to live your 40, your 50, your 60, your 70, your 90 years of life with this nice, tidy life, everything insured, everything all buttoned up, looking really nice, I'll say this to you. I don't know many of you personally, even those who I know personally, I don't know all of the details of your life, but what I do know and I will say with absolute confidence to everyone watching or everyone listening is this, you are not enough to live for. I don't care how you view yourself or how important you view yourself or what you have or don't have. You are not enough. I am not enough to live for. 
This invitation by Jesus to trade my life for the life he has for me is an invitation to significance. Do you get that? The invitation for you who want to preserve your life to actually give your life away to him is actually an invitation to true, long life, eternal significance. Now, I grew up going to church. Uh, And back in my day, we had church Sunday morning, we had church Sunday night, we had church on Wednesday nights, and three times a year, we had all-week church, special meetings. So I was there every Sunday, heard sermon after sermon, and I would hear the kind of messages that would say, your life needs purpose, your life needs purpose. I've preached the messages like that, you need to have purpose. This is a message about having purpose. But here's the problem. For most of us, when you hear, you need purpose, most of us say, no, I need a car that's dependable. That's what I need. You need purpose. No, I I need a good paycheck, a regular paycheck. I could stand to, I need a raise. You need purpose. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need someone in my life. You need purpose. And we go through this thing that says, I really don't need purpose. I need all these other things. And any person who has all those other things. Any person who can say, hey, my dreams have come true. I've got the dream job. I've got the dream house. I got my dream car. I got my dream spouse will tell you it isn't enough. They will tell you I've got all of it and there's still something missing. What every single person listening or watching is going to discover is this. Whoever you are, Whatever you are in life, whatever stuff you have, no matter what you have or what you don't have, no matter what you do or what you don't do, no matter what your job is or the job you wish, whatever you own or what you don't own, at some point along the way, you are going to discover yourself saying to yourself, is this stuff matter? Is all this worth it? Does it all matter? Does any of this matter? And the truth of it is, if it's all about you, it really doesn't matter at all. If it's all about you and your better life and how to make you better, it really doesn't matter at all. So he gives us his invitation because he knows that. Jesus knew all along that when you get to the point where you say, does all of it matter, you're going to come up with the the fact that it really can't matter much because it's still leaving you empty. So he gives the invitation. All of you who want to preserve your life, and that's us, it's me, you want to preserve your life, I'm going to show you how to do it. You're going to give your life to me. You're going to give your life completely away. Boy, that goes against everything in our thought process. In our preserving mentality, he says, you want, you want a full life? You're going to give it all away. This church in its history, up to and including today and tomorrow, this church is filled with people who have figured out how to find fulfillment. They have figured out how to have a full life. It's in giving themselves away. Diana Guypel, she was in the first service. She had to leave early to go work in children's ministries. Diana, Diana Guypel, when I came here 35 years ago, she was working with children. She was the head of our children's department 35 years ago. Back then, she was young and ministered to children. Today, she's still ministering to children. <laughs> Older and still ministering to children. And if you were to pull Diana Guypel aside, and she didn't know I was going to use her as a... As a example or she probably would have told me no if you pull her aside and say why have you spent your whole life down there working with children she would say because it's the time of my life 
I can't even imagine not living for the kids. We've got workers throughout this church that have spent a good portion of their lifetimes serving people, pouring themselves out for other people. And you could ask them, what's why? And they would say, I can't imagine not. Because they figured it out, they discovered it. I was working on my sermon this past week. So Tuesday night, I told you, is my sermon night, I, sermon day. I try to start it the day and, and work the night to get it done. So usually I work till three or four o'clock in the morning. I'm a night guy, so it doesn't bother me. Some nights are better than others, but, uh, but I get distracted easy or I get stuck. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy, I can be working along, I get stuck on a thought, one sentence, one, one idea, I get stuck. And I mean, if you, could, if you could look in the windows at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd see me walking through the building, looking like I'm doing nothing. I'm going through the refrigerator, and there's nothing in there, and the cupboards, and, and it's not that I'm hungry, I'm just bored out of my mind, and I'm stuck, I, 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 whatever. So I'm sitting at my desk this past week, about midnight, and I take a picture of me kicking back at my desk with my feet up. I take a selfie of me stuck, and I'm, I, got, I got to send this to somebody, so I sent it to Cam Bushy. Cam is our technical arts director. Don't ask me why I sent it to him. If I have your number, I'll send it to you next time. I mean, midnight, if you're up, I'm in. So I send this picture to him and say, I'm stuck. I'm, my, my sir, I'm stuck. I mean, 10 seconds later, he sends me back a a question mark about well, stuck on what, whatever. So I just say, oh, I'm just stuck in my sermon. So he sent me this note back. With seconds, he goes, you need a Gandalf quote. Now, I don't know if you know who Gandalf is. I'll explain it. Um, well, I'll give you a picture. This is Gandalf. Look at the screen. And at one point, he goes, yeah, that's, you're Gandalf. You need a Gandalf. That is not me. I don't want that to be me, not in any way, shape, or form. But he goes, you need a Gandalf quote. Now, let me give you the quick background. If you don't know who Gandalf is, some of you don't, most of you should, but Gandalf is the protagonist, he's the good guy in the book series that's been written by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, which is The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He's the protagonist, I mean, he's the good guy in all of this. Now, Tolkien, if you don't know him, his background was a devout Catholic Christian. So in all the books he writes, you've got these Christian themes, in all the movies there's these Christian themes that pop up all through it because it was part of who he was. So he says, you need a Gandalf quote. So I text back and goes, you know, Gandalf isn't all that quotable. Thank you very much. Now, this is the part that blows my mind. It wasn't 30 seconds. I mean, literally, we're talking maybe 20 seconds. He sends me back a video clip. I mean, think about this. Midnight, Gandalf isn't that quotable. Boom, I, 20, I, I, 15 seconds, I got a clip. What does this guy do with his life? <laughs> I even said that to him. I was like, what do you, how do you, I mean, are, do you have this thing just queued up waiting, thinking that someday someone's going to ask you for a clip? And I, I even say something, and maybe 10 seconds later, he sends me a second clip. And it's like I'm thinking, I got I to gotta help this guy. I got I to gotta help him. I got to get a life for him. So he sends me this clip, and here's the background of this clip. So if you know anything about Lord of the Rings, you've got a number of characters, but in this clip, there's a character named Frodo, who is a hobbit, and he had, he's come into possession of this ring. And the ring is everything evil. The ring is all, everything powerfully evil. And his goal is to get rid of this ring once and for all. There's only one way to get rid of it. There's a certain place you got to go and burn it in this fire where it was originally forged. So the, the whole storyline is him trying to get to that place of destroying the ring. And of course, if you anything about the movie, you know that it is one nonstop battle accordingly. All the forces of evil trying to stop him and get the ring, all of that. And he has this moment where he sits down with Gandalf and he says, I wish this ring had never come to me. 
So I might as well show you the clip so Cam is happy. Here we go. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. You see, for most of us in our lives, whether this would be a great year, a bad year, whether it's a good life or a bad life, will be based upon what we have or what we don't have. And I've been with enough people that have come into my office through the years to talk to me, saying, I wish this thing hadn't come into my life. In his case, it was, I wish the ring hadn't, but I can tell you, I wish this divorce hadn't come in. I wish this hadn't come in. I wish I, I, wish I didn't have this, or I wish I would have had this. Well, truth of it is, for most things, what you have or don't have isn't up to you. And his statement, what you have to decide is what you're going to do with the time that has been given to you. I thought, truth from Gandalf. <laughs> Actually, that's truth right from the heart of God. We get wrapped up what we have or we don't have, or I wish this hadn't happened. I wish this wouldn't be taken place. I wish it was a different world we lived in. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. And his statement was, it's not for you to decide. Your decision. What are you going to do with the time that you've been given? And then he asks this part, he says, you know, and all the stuff that you have, you know, you were meant to have it, which is encouraging. And I'm going, encouraging? It really is. When you stop to recognize that God has given you all that you need for today and all that you need to have for you to give it back to him and say, I'm going to give my life to you. I'll follow you. So there's the end. The ending piece that says this. So what are you going to do with the time that you have? If you're going to do something at all, about anyone else, it's going to cost you something. And in the end, you will say, worth it. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. Every one of us in our lives, we struggle at times with the circumstances we're in, what we have, what we don't have, but it really is going to come down to giving our lives away to you or whether we're going to try to preserve them for ourselves. I am a life preserver. It's exactly what I try to do. And yet I recognize that when I actually will let it all go to you, it, come back, it comes back to me over and over again. Raise up in this church people who will say, I'm in. Raise up in this church people who in the course of this next week, in the months, in this year, will look beyond themselves to say, God, I am willing to sacrifice me, it, the things, the stuff, for the sake of something bitter. I do want to preserve my life. And I recognize that by giving it all away to you, I get it all back. Raise up in this church people who will serve, who will minister, who will care. 
that will see someone in need, see someone in poverty, and instead of going, oh my, will say, oh Lord, what must I do to make that life different? Dismiss us in your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You draw me close when every-